1: The Philosophy of Sex. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex, Long Play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau Hammond. What's the most outlandish thing someone's asked you to do during sex? How did it make you feel? And how did you respond? Did you think about it afterwards? It's likely that at some point, you found your morals have felt incongruent with a sexual scenario you found yourself in. And while this can feel pretty alarming and blindsiding in the moment and afterwards, what would it mean to stop and think about it? What does it mean to think about sex? I'm not just talking about the fantasy that pops into your head while you're sitting at your desk, or the wince of embarrassment you feel in the cold checkout queue as you think about something you did during last night's hookup. What does it mean to think about sex in all of its complexity, nuance, and messiness, including the hurts, disappointments, embarrassments, as well as the good times? Sex can be awkward and uncomfortable, but it can also be fun, funny, and emancipating. I believe it's important to fully accept sex in its totality, because as today's guest, Damon Young, says, we think through the same flesh we fuck with. Damon Young is an award-winning philosopher and author. He's written 13 books of non-fiction and children's fiction, which have been published in multiple languages. He writes for newspapers and magazines and is a regular radio and festival guest. Damon has also published poetry and short fiction. He's an associate in the School of Philosophy at the University of Melbourne and founding faculty at the School of Life in Melbourne. Most relevant to our conversation is his book On Getting Off, a book about sex and philosophy. In the book, Damon urges us to fuck enthusiastically, but with an attentive pause, and grapples with the complexity of fucking in an honest and self-deprecating way. In this episode, Damon and I discuss what it means to think about sex, what philosophers have gotten right and wrong in their thoughts about sex, and the importance of humor and allowing yourself to feel embarrassed in the bedroom and what it means to embrace the ethical dilemmas and ambiguity sex gives rise to. The more I learn about sex, the more I come to believe knowing what you want is far less important than being open to what could be, and being able to share this with others. The ability to change your mind and dance with ambiguity is where sexual freedom and liberation lies. Sex isn't simple, it never was and it never will be, I believe it's time for us to shift our expectation of sex as something that can be understood. Ethical dilemmas are always going to be part of sex. As Damon says, because sex so often involves others, it is ethical. Because sex happens within history, it is political. And this will always be the case. Sex cannot be hacked, simplified or codified. And if it could be, I don't think it would be that fun. Being sexually free and living outside of tired sexual scripts means embracing the enigmatic nature of sex. Above all, it means putting reflection ahead of reflex. Please enjoy my conversation with the wonderfully considerate Damon Young. What do you think sex is? And I know this is a pretty vague and broad question, but I think the way you approach it in the book is quite interesting. And I like that you begin the book with the premise of what even is sex? What does this sort of ambiguous term actually refer to?
0: Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem because it's this it's assumption that sex just is this one thing. Oh, it's just getting your rocks off or it's just pure savagery, you know, or it's just domination or it's just oppression. And what I wanted to do was to kind of start again and just say, well, hang on a second. You know, we're all assuming like we know what it is. And there's this assumption that, you know, if you pair back the veneer of society, you just get raw sex. It's like, well, okay, well, what's that then? Oh, no, we've got our answer. It's raw sex. <laughs> well, what's that? So for me, I was influenced by a philosopher called Irving Singer who divided sex into libido, eros, and romance. And very quickly, the libido is our kind of sexual drives. Um, uh, the, you know We might call them these, these physiological urges we have. And they often end up in procreation, but that's a very different statement to saying they're about procreation. That's not what they're for. They're not for anything. They just exist. Eros is our aesthetic relationship to the world, the way we're drawn to things. Those things we're drawn to might be, you know, the the curve of someone's waist and hip, but it might also be a flower. So Eros is not necessarily libidinal, but it is sexual. And then there's romance, and romance is the way in which two or more, But I'm going to start with two. Two beings encounter each other as whole human beings. They matter to one another as whole people. Um, Now, that might be three people. It might be four people. But just for the purposes of this, let's say it's two. And it was super important for me to say that while all of these things are sexual, they don't always happen together. And there's no divine plan that says they have to happen together. So you can have an erotic response to someone, but not want to fuck them. Mm. You can have a romantic relationship with someone and not want to fuck them. And you can most obviously want to fuck someone, but have neither a romantic (laughs) nor an aesthetic response to them. Now they often come together and you might Mm. start with libido and end with romance or start with romance and end with libido. But I I wanted to be able to say, these things have no necessary connection to each other. Mm. They just often hang together partly because of nature, but also partly because of culture that we're told Mm. they have to hang together. Mm. So as a philosopher, I wanted enough categories to make sense of difference, but not so many categories that it's like, oh, well, sex is everything then. You know, Mm. having a hamburger, that's sex. Writing in a book, that's sex. (laughs) No, it's not. And you get this, this problem with, you know, Freud's approach or people who are influenced by that or just people who are really horny is the idea that they think everything's about sex. And well, yeah. I mean, okay, that's meaningless then.
1: Mm. I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a very useful way of sort of compartmentalizing the different components of what can feed into a sexual experience in a, in a quite a tangible and useful way. And I think often we're not very good at quantifying some of those attributes. So do you know what informed singer's sort of three-pronged idea?
0: No, but it, it makes sense of partly the, the, the history of philosophical discussion of love mm. and sex. So there are various notions of love we get from the Greeks, and uh, one of them is the love between friends. You know, you, you have your, your – your, a philos is a friend, whereas the arestis and the eromenos were lovers you know, sexual mm-hmm. lovers, and then there's agap um, agape or agapi, which is the another word for love, which ended up being the sort of Christian notion for God's love for mm-hmm. humans, which is this kind of vast, never-ending, almost thankless love. Mm-hmm. And you, you can see that aspects of that have become bound up in singers' mm-hmm. ideas, you know, so there's, there's, a, there's the all the erotic, and then the kind of romantic. Agape mm-hmm. isn't exactly romantic, but I think it's what we often associate with people who are no longer merely thinking about themselves, they're thinking of others, and they see that mm-hmm. other as partly an aspect of themselves. Mm-hmm.
1: Eros and agape are often seen as sort of two different things, right?
0: But they yes. sit
1: very closely together.
0: I mean, it gets muddled because not everyone uses the same terminology yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, if, even looking at the, at the Greeks, um, depending on context, the same word may have various uses. But we, we do get it. We, we ended up with a kind of standardised notion you know, of mm-hmm. friendship love versus erotic love versus custodial love is mm. agape. Uh, where where you have responsibility for another and it's that's expressed in doing. So this this love is not just a feeling, it's an action, it's a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that that too is part of romance. So I can't say specifically what influenced Singer, although I'm sure it's there in his work, but it makes sense as arising out of this tradition of discussion where you mm-hmm. kind of, you know, philosophers have come along and say, Everyone's talking about love, but what do they mean? Especially in English, because we have this one word, love, (laughs) and it covers everything from what you might feel for a romantic partner to a chocolate bar to what you feel for your children. And they're all very different kinds of relationships.
1: Mm. And I think it leads nicely into my next question, which was around sort of what philosophers have previously said about sex historically i mean you know we have a very particular idea of the greeks now as these sort of very sexually open liberated beings but i mean you look into it even just a little bit and it's pretty blindingly obvious that that's not the case and that seems to carry right through to even how a lot of philosophers are sort of writing and thinking now obviously you could give us a huge timeline on (laughs) what different philosophers have, have said and what their different theories have been. But if you were to kind of sum it up, how would you go about doing that?
0: Sure. Okay, first of all, the Greeks were very open about sex, which is nice. It, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air next to most of the Western European history of philosophy. But there's still a wariness of sex. And I, and I think that you could characterize the history of philosophy in, in terms of sex in three ways trivialising sex as something stupid, as something kind of silly, demonising sex as something dangerous, or just ignoring it altogether. It's not part, mm-hmm. of, it's not part of a, a mature ad, you know, intellectual discussion. It's something you do, obviously, but it's not something you would talk about. Mm-hmm. And this attitude to sex carried on for well over a couple of thousand years, including theology. Uh, with a sort of brief omissions here and there in the, the Enlightenment, and then you kind of get to the end of the 19th century and you start to get a more earnest and open and honest conversation about sex. Sometimes it comes through medicine, so it's, it's okay for Freud to talk about sex because he's a doctor. But by the 20th century, you really do start seeing sex as something that is not only able to be discussed, but something that is worthy of discussion, and that's a slightly different thing. Mm. You know, you can, you can talk about the libido, but the idea of celebrating it, of saying, actually, this, this might actually be rewarding to really think about, yeah, that's something that only comes in the 20th century. And I can't say I've, there's a definite causal link here, but I don't think it's a coincidence that you start seeing more women in philosophy in the same era. Now it's still mm. bad. Philosophy is dominated by men. Mm. It's it's one of, in terms of numbers. It's one of the worst. And the same number of women go in an undergraduate, and then they're slowly, slowly pushed mm. out, essentially. Mm. And I don't think it's a coincidence that philosophy has a terrible record on women and a terrible record, on sex. But I'm you know I'm not I'm not making a case here. I'm just making an observation. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a pretty blinding observation as soon as you start yeah. <laughs> to look into it. Yeah. You know, when I was reading your book, you sort of get 10 or 12 pages in hearing about what sort of different philosophers have thought and you realize, yeah, there's no, there's no woman here as no. you then point out at that moment. Yes. So <laughs> yep. yeah, I mean, I I don't think you can argue that that's insignificant and hasn't had an impact on, on how we've approached things. Yes. But, I mean, there is still variation. I mean, you had people like sort of Marquis de Sade saying, you know, basically anything goes, there are no morals. So there has been some sort of ebb and flow, whether for good or bad. But I think it's interesting that it's always been seen as something that is problematic when you're trying to be rational and trying to be a, a thinking agent. What is your feeling on why we often view sex as something that can't be thought about rationally.
0: I think the the first one is a kind of philosophical prejudice. Um, so, sex, sex blurs boundaries—the notion of inside and outside, and and um, and you and me, and where am I ending, and my kind of seemingly brute physical urges beginning. Um, there's a sense of these categories being mushed together and I'm not in control. And if I give myself over to these reflexes, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm giving up on control, essentially, on, on, on rational force and my capacity to bring that force to bear on the world. So the idea there is that sex then must be antithetical to thought and it must be antithetical to controlling myself and controlling the world and therefore living a civilised life all evidence to the contrary, we just know that's not the case. But for, for a great many philosophers, those blurring of boundaries and that sense of giving into reflex are antithetical to philosophy itself because philosophy is pure thought, um, kind of ethereal, doesn't have blurred boundaries, it doesn't have messy edges, everything's very clear and neat and it's willed, it's purely willed. Okay, so you, you you couldn't possibly give in to something that is seemingly rises up from your yeah. savage animal depths. So, if I if I could sum that up, it's it's like sex is the enemy of the philosophical calling, and this is you know why Plato, who was no stranger to sex, you know he was a handsome Athenian aristocrat, <laughs> he knew about desire, he knew about love. He wrote about it, you know, brilliantly. Mm. But in the end, he essentially says, "Look, you know, if you see a beautiful boy and you're drawn to that boy, okay, you you could be drawn to the beautiful and the good through that boy. That's that's great. So we can find a use for sex. But really, you shouldn't have sex. You should mm-hmm. remain chaste," is his advice, because otherwise, the your brutal, bestial animal spirits will drag you down and that attitude with some variations characterizes a lot of philosophy. Mm. You know, it's it's if you identify yourself as pure mentality, you know, pure cognition, anything that is seemingly opposed to that you're going to want to marginalize or deny altogether.
1: Mm. Which I mean, it seems like a complete delusion, right, to to assume that you can just Cut yourself off in that way, and I think it's interesting because that fear of vulnerability almost kind of comes through in how a lot of these philosophies are conveyed. Like, for example, in the book, you talk about one particular Epicurean who says it's sort of better to fuck just anyone than someone that you actually love or care about. Yes, that's
0: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because otherwise, it, you're, you're you're hamstrung by affection. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this again that's why I mentioned control before because there is this tradition in philosophy of kind of wanting to be in charge as much mm-hmm. as you possibly can. It's about power and anything that undermines your sense of autonomy even if you give into it and even if all evidence points to the contrary, it's undoing you. It's making you less of a man and it's no coincidence that a lot of this stuff is bound up in notions of masculinity. You know, mm. the, you're less of a man if you masturbate or you're less of a man if you, like, imagine having sex with a woman. Oh, <laughs> what kind of a man are you? Yeah,
1: it's, it's so interesting, right, how, how you can kind of see, I guess, the, the cultural threads of some of that stuff. I was even thinking the other day about sort of hookup culture and sort of reading that idea of it's better to fuck just anyone than someone you care about. Mm. I mean, that's still very prolific and pervasive in our current culture. So these ideas aren't something that we seem to have necessarily evolved past in a lot of cases either, despite the fact that they're, you know, pretty old.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree entirely. Um, it's, It's frightening how many of these ancient philosophical prejudices are still with us. Um, mm. And as a philosopher, you go, off. Oh, I've seen that before. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> Which is, it's useful, but also a bit frustrating.
1: Mm, I mean, it's also, it's interesting because I think with the Greeks in, in particular, there is this kind of reverence, of them, which I think is often based on sort of a a misunderstanding of ideas. It's easy to sort of cherry pick quotes from them because, you know, they were articulate and great writers and interesting and you can kind of romanticize it. But I think if you look at the core problems that they were dealing with, you know, I'm not sure we've come that far.
0: (laughs) In a great many cases, no. In many cases, they were just wrong. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean and they weren't wrong for good reason they were wrong mm. because like us they were prejudiced beings who wanted to be consoled about the universe rather than confronting it directly mm. um, and, and you know not taking anything away from them someone like Plato for example was an enormously powerful thinker and a brilliant mm. artist I mean his some of his dialogues were exquisitely written Yeah, but he just got stuff wrong mm. and that's completely fine because that's yeah. part of yeah. his job. Yeah. And again, this is another thing I wanted to stress with regard to sex is that, you know, as I said at the beginning, there's this assumption that we just know what it is, but it's like, no, 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 no. You, you don't know. We're still working stuff out. We're still muddling through this together. And if, you know, if you come to sex, assuming you've got all the answers, that's dangerous. That's Mm. dangerous for you and the people you're with.
1: Mm. And I think it leads well into the next question around why is thinking about sex important? And I think I I want to distinguish here in terms of what I mean by thinking about sex thinking about sex doesn't just mean having sexual thoughts and thinking about fucking and all of these yeah, kinds yeah, of yeah. things. It's actually, yes. I'm talking about the intellectual pursuit of trying to understand sex.
0: Yeah. I, I think the the first response to that, and I know this sounds weird, but the first response is that thinking itself is good. Like it's actually okay to think about things. It's not bad for you. And I don't mean overthinking because that actually often has to do with anxiety and a kind of fixation on certain ideas. That's not necessarily thinking at all. It just resembles mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. actually thinking about stuff is good, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And a lot of my books are about taking ordinary, ac- you know, activities, exercise, gardening, reading, and saying, "Let's mm-hmm. think about these things." And indulging our curiosity is a pleasure all of its own. And so yeah. I kind of I'm unashamedly saying, "Well, we should think about sex, firstly, because thinking is cool and fun." that's actually okay. But, but the second thing is, as I was saying earlier, this idea that we just know what sex is, we get ideas like, well, sex is, is purely about procreation. Therefore, if you're not having sex to procreate, you're bad. Therefore, we need to punish you for having sex outside of marriage. These are philosophical ideas about the nature of the world, sex is for procreation, that end up in actual policies that Mm. actually harm people. You know, well, men just naturally have to have sex. You can't stop them because they have to. They're predators. Therefore, we should just really not punish men too severely for doing what they want. And Mm. you think, well, that just sounds like a completely ridiculous idea But that's what's happened for centuries um, Mm. with women. And again, these are philosophical ideas about the nature of the world, the nature of gender that affect our everyday lives. And we still have phrases like boys will be boys, Mm. which A, misses all the cases in which they're not, (laughs) in which the category (laughs) of boy is extremely complicated and subtle, but it also justifies, you know, cruel behavior. Mm. Um, it's a terrible idea. and it, But once again, it's an idea about the nature of the world. And so, you know, often what philosophers do is just say, I know you think you have these great ideas about the way the world works, but they're abstractions. They're not the mm. world. They're just your ideas. Let's take a look at those ideas. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so if I could sum that up, thinking for its own sake is good, but also thinking can help us to avoid harm.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think in, in the book there's one part where you say something to the effect of because sex so often involves others, it's ethical and because it happens within history, it's political. And yes. I think that's a wonderful way of summing up how important it is that we actually do give these things due consideration. Obviously there are so many different methodologies that we can to use to think about sex, is, you know, philosophy is just one of them. Is mm. psychology, there's ideas of biology, sociology. What do you think philosophy offers that sits sort of outside of those other methodologies? How does it also feed into them? And what makes it appropriate for thinking about these things?
0: Yeah, I, I think um, if you were to just take standard philosophical ideas from history and apply them to sex, it wouldn't be useful. Mm. I mean, in some cases, all you'd be doing is repeating prejudices without examining them. But where philosophy is at its most useful is um, Alfred North Whitehead called it a critic of abstractions. Mm. And as I was mentioning before, we tend to think of abstractions as academic things, intellectual things, but we all use abstractions. These ideas we have of the world are just little parts of a much greater whole that's much more complex often than we realise. And we take this little bit and we say, oh, this is is a fact. This is true. Uh, I'm going to stand by this. I'm going to behave in accordance with this. But if you look at this abstraction, it's far too neat. It's missing all kinds of mess and fluidity and a philosopher at their best is someone who comes along and criticises the abstraction at its most fundamental level. And that's, so that's kind of what I've done with sex itself is to say, okay, mm-hmm. you think you know what sex is? Let's look a little more closely. And then you can do the same thing with, say, nudity um, or laughter in the bedroom, kind of having a look at these basic concepts and saying, well, do we actually know what we think we know? Let's try to make sense of these.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, discourse around sex generally is pretty superficial, particularly within sort of more mainstream discussion. I think, you know, you talk about how Greek philosophers were pretty good at trivializing sex. I think Mm. we still are pretty good at trivializing sex. Why do you think we struggle to engage in more genuine discourse about sexuality and, and sex?
0: So I think there's there's two parts to that. I think the first part is that popular discourse is pretty superficial, regardless of what people are talking about. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> and it's that's partly because it's for entertainment, not actually for reflection. It's partly because the forums are often shallow, um, so you, you can't have a good conversation about anything often on, say, you know, commercial radio or commercial television, let alone. Sex. And also, but thinking more specifically about sex, I think it's partly because we're only really, historically speaking, starting the conversation. Mm. Um, yeah, obviously, there are exceptions, but we're inheriting close to 2000 years of bad ideas. And we're not going to overcome a lot of those muddled notions quickly. And I, I think a lot of people are, are sort of hanging on to very familiar tropes about sex that are comfortable, uh, that mm-hmm. often have their roots in much older traditions, much older prejudices, and they carry them along with them and they help to make sense of the world. Boys will be boys, sugar and spice and girls. <laughs> Notions that sexuality and gender, you know, just completely knitted to each other and are basically the same thing. So gay men are basically women. Ideas like this that you read about and you just think, have you ever met a human? (laughs) But but these ideas are so familiar and they're so backed up by all kinds of pop culture and Mm. community relations that you never have to encounter an idea that isn't, familiar and comforting so Mm. i think you're pushing back against also taboos we haven't been allowed to talk about a lot of these things openly and it's still considered impolite to talk about certain things Mm -hmm. to talk about Mm -hmm. you know sex for the i the fact that i used fucking in this book the word i appreciated that (laughs) is is considered you know that's that's unintellectual that's non-philosophical So there's all these reasons why the conversations can be shallow, from the general shallowness of of popular conversations to the short amount of time we've been talking about this in depth to the idea that sex is a bit rude, you know, Mm -hmm. so you can't have a good conversation. So the Mm -hmm. fact that there are any profound, reflective, challenging works on sex at all is sort of an achievement. And I don't mean my own. I I mean other people's. Mm.
1: No, I I think it's true. I mean, even concepts that are sort of coming more into the mainstream now that are sort of being praised as a step forward in our approaches to sexuality, like sexual wellness and things like that. I mean, you look at how the, the language and the discourse around those things are actually being played out. And they're equally as prudish as everything that we've inherited from before. And I think Mark Twain said, history never repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And I feel like there's just (laughs) a lot of, a lot of that happening in the space around discourse around sex and fucking and all of these things. Mm. So, which makes me sort of wonder what are the, the risks and the rewards of actually talking about sex in these different ways. I don't think we should just be talking about it in this sort of in-depth way all of the time necessarily. No. I think there needs to be space for levity and humor, exactly as you raise in the book. But yeah, if you were to write a list of pros and cons, what would be in
0: each column? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think that I think the the chief problem with intellectualizing sex is that you inherit traditions that can't deal with what you're talking about. So you end up with a whole Armful of dodgy abstractions that don't at any point touch the messy reality of sex, and so you don't have the tools, and so you might approach sex from with a background in you know health and medicine, for example, and so you're going to miss a whole load of stuff um, that isn't to do with health sex then just becomes a tool to make people well. So there's no sense of curiosity, no sense of discovery. This is just a widget for producing people who are, you know, fitter or, or more sane. Now, I don't have a problem with sex being part of a healthy life, but if you treat it like a, a tool, you're going to be missing something. Um, similarly, mm. well, you're going to have to do this weird transformation where you where you take embodiment and you you get rid of it, and sex can only be this weird, uh, ethereal meeting of spirits. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> the, the the big problem about about intellectualizing sex, or at least one big problem, is you never do academic work in a vacuum. You're always bringing something with you, and you need to be aware of all this baggage you're lugging behind you that you then try to stuff sex into, <laughs> and. So that, that's one problem. I, th- I think the other problem is that, and, and that has to do with social structures and class. Usually if, if you're a scholar, you've come into the academy with a very particular background and a very very specific set of assumptions about how the world works and how, how best to speak and how best to move and how best to dress and how best to relate to a romantic partner. And you bring all that class and often ethnicity stuff in with you. So I'm, I'm not talking now about the, the theoretical tradition you bring with you. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the kind of the, the social history you bring with you as someone who's trained in a university. And if you look at, say, sex work, for example, there's somewhere where highly educated middle-class academics often speak very patronisingly about sex workers whose lives they know nothing about. Mm -hmm. And those lives are stripped of all kinds of nuance and they become, for example, just morality tales about the dangers of patriarchy and nothing else. And the sex workers are replying and saying, but that doesn't fit with our experience. That's not Mm -hmm. what we, we, we... we are at the forefront of capitalist danger. We know all about that, but you can't reduce our lives to this. Mm. Um, but that reduction is what is what happens. Mm. Does that make sense?
1: It does. It does. I mean, obviously, sort of walking comes to mind immediately when you sort of start talking about that where, in theory, you read the arguments that she's making around pornography and sex work and they feel intellectually quite compelling ideas around subjugation. You can't really argue that if there's a subject and a subjugator, that that, that dynamic will be inherent, mm. but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it translates into real life. Yeah. And it feels like that is often the missing piece. And as you say, it, it's not reflected in, in people's
0: experiences. Exactly. But yeah. they
1: can feel very compelling.
0: <laughs> yeah. And look, they can often be theoretically coherent, they hang together as arguments. It's just, mm. it's what they're missing that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And and that's, again, what you forget as a scholar, what you're missing is this mm. ba- huge social background that you bring with you as mm. an intellectual. That was one of the reasons why in my chapter on sex work, the only people quoted in the chapter are sex workers. Mm. I don't think that, you know, through that, I'm getting to some unalloyed truth that no mm. one has ever got to. I just wanted to give voice to the people whose experiences I was talking about, mm. um, rather than a whole lot of other people who hadn't had those experiences at all.
1: Mm. And I mean, it's it's interesting what you say about sort of women in the profession. I think some of the most interesting sort of philosophical ideas around sex that I've read have been from women who aren't necessarily philosophers but are sort of approaching it in that way like Catherine Millet or Virginie Deputant. We had a woman on the podcast last season who worked as a philosopher in a university but became just so (laughs) disenchanted with all of it that she's now gone off and worked more as an an author but Mm -hmm. is still very much doing that work just not within sort of... The academic context of philosophy. Yes, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's philosophy, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yep. I actually, so, I saw a tweet this morning from a, um, a sex worker who's being paid, say, eight hundred American dollars by a porn company for a piece of writing,
1: mm.
0: and and then she said, as opposed to the you know short piece of writing, as opposed to the ten thousand word works that I write for the academy that I do for nothing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that are full. Seems
1: like a better deal, right? (laughs) Yeah, and
0: she was just like, and you know, I'm I'm so used to having. I could have negotiated a better deal, she said. But as a member of the academy, I'm so used to my labour being devalued that I just took the money. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Um, and it's the sense that the academy is supposedly this place of free intellectual activity, you know, Mm. without coercion, where people follow their intellectual dreams. Whereas sex work is a place of pure subjugation and domination and the oppression of women.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, and if we were to think about this more in terms of the layperson. Yeah. If you were to give a a 30-second <laughs> elevator pitch. <laughs> I mean, you 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 say thoughtless fucking is fun, but so is thinking about it, which maybe that's your elevator pitch, I don't know.
0: <laughs> I suppose I'd say something like if you believe that you are nothing more than a bundle of reflexes nothing more than a sort of bunch of organs to to ooze and squeeze, then don't think about sex. You don't need to. Everything will just happen naturally. If, on the other hand, you're a full human being with a mind and with an imagination who wants to have rich relationships with other human beings who also have minds and imaginations, then you should think about sex. That's my elevator pitch. Good.
1: It's a good one. (laughs) So I wanted to change tack a bit and talk about the absurdity of sex. I feel Mm -hmm. like this is a really foundational part of your argument that sort of sets up for what becomes your thesis, I guess, for lack of a better term. So why is sex so funny? But why are we not always good at recognizing that?
0: (laughs) Okay. So, um, Funny things often have to do with incongruities, with, with, with things that are joined together, but seemingly shouldn't be. You know, the classic joke is something happens. You think something's going to happen after that, but it doesn't. Something else happens. Oh, my God. That's incongruity. The two things are joined that shouldn't be. As I was saying earlier, sex is an aspect of our existence. It's constantly blurring the edges of categories. Um, So, you know, things that are on the inside of us are suddenly outside and the physical boundary between me and someone else is broken down and things that are soft are suddenly hard or things that we want to be hard are soft. There's all kinds of occasions where our normal neat categories break down. And in general, our response to incongruity takes two forms. Horror. We, we see something that isn't quite right. You know, zombies are dead but alive. That's incongruity. Vampires drink blood and sleep in the daytime. And, you know, these are all kinds of blurred categories. We, we respond with fear and horror. Unless we're safe. Mm. If we're safe, if we feel safe, we respond to incongruity with laughter. So... This, the very same incongruity will cause two very different emotional responses depending on how we feel about it. Mm. And sex is the arena of that happening. <laughs> you know, it is, at its worst, it is a region of body horror where things happen that shouldn't happen, where things are oozy and, and gooey and shuddering and the whole normal, neat world you know, of everyday life breaks down. And, it, yeah, and if you don't feel safe, if you feel threatened or humiliated, it will feel like that. Mm. If you feel safe, if you feel respected, if you feel like you have shelter and security mm. and someone who cares about you with you, then it's going to be funny. Mm. And, you know, one of the points of that, my chapter on humour is trying to move our relationships so we have a space of humour about these things rather than a space of fear and horror where mm-hmm. you can put up with these weird things happening to us and between us and not freak out or get angry
1: mm-hmm. where you can
0: just laugh, except for the cases where you shouldn't laugh, which is what I also wanted to talk about in the chapter. Yeah. Because there are in- incongruities um, in sex that aren't funny Mm. They shouldn't be funny. In fact, they're not incongruities. Um, so the, it's one of the reasons I talked about trans people in that chapter is they're only incongruous to us because we've inherited this ridiculous ideology of binary gender. Mm. Once you accept that that's actually just not true physiologically or culturally, there's no incongruity there. It just it evaporates. It disappears. I wanted to... Do justice to how funny sex is because I think, like, it's so easy to be. It's very serious. We're going to have a serious talk about sex now. <laughs> and you get into the, either the medical discourse where it's like all you do is talk about serious sexual pathologies. And, you know, mm-hmm. Freud is so serious.
1: Yeah, he really is, isn't he? <laughs>
0: You know, despite being a marvelous writer, it's just no. We have to talk about this seriously, otherwise the bourgeoisie won't listen to us. Mm. And no, how could you be a sexual being and not laugh? Mm. And so I, I really wanted to do justice to that, um, mm. to that experience.
1: Do you do you think this is linked at all to sort of Aristotle's idea of comedy and tragedy being sort of two sides of the same coin? That what could be comedic we sort of often view as not necessarily a tragedy, but embarrassing. There's a self-consciousness that comes with sex, right, that is often prohibitive to laughter.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I I can't speak to the Aristotle because I can't remember that portion of poetics, but um, certainly embarrassment, humiliation, bodily or social fear constantly prevent us from being able to laugh and, through laughing, distance ourselves from what's happening. One of the most powerful aspects of sexual experience when it goes wrong is the sense of being stuck in a situation and being mired mm. in this this horrible event that's taking place that you probably didn't ask for, you didn't want, you didn't expect, and now you're in it. And laughter is the fire exit that allows you to escape mm. to get you some distance, um, hopefully together, you know, yes. however many of you are in the room. Structurally, in terms of how these ideas work together and how these events play out, they're very similar. Mm. Um, you know, the, the comedy and tragedy are not so far apart. Mm. It's how we make sense of the situation that makes it, you know, either the most shocking, scarring thing that's happening or something we could laugh off.
1: I feel like it's a pretty big, like a missing component, right? There's probably, you know, you think back on sort of partners that you've had, and there's very few you could have genuine humor with. There, as you say, there's just a very strong component of
0: safety that comes comes with it. Mm. Yes, and look, understandably so. Yeah, I, I understand why it has to be seen as serious. I also think I don't have enough evidence to make a strong causal claim here, but. If you look at the way Hollywood treats sex, there's a a very strong seriousness of it all. You know, mm. there might be there might be laughter in the flirtation or whatever, but while they f- in, in actual scenes of sex in Hollywood, it's all very staring and gazing and just looking and everything's this it's all it's all very austere and noble yeah. and dignified and mm-hmm. that can happen like that can be a wonderful thing but you don't see them laughing in the middle of it you don't see the yeah. jokes you don't see yeah. the small talk you don't see the weird you know there was a scene in seinfeld once where they talk about elaine liking to have a chat about the day's events during sex yeah that's one of the You know what I mean? yeah that's yeah. like Depending on the mood, yeah, sure that that might be a mood killer, but it also might be <laughs> might be a way to feel more comfortable
1: or... and acknowledge the fact that you're probably both thinking about that anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I again, I don't doubt these kinds of things happen, but it's mm. it's the assumption that that's all sex is. Yeah, you know, and I wanted to leave room for funny sex, for absurd sex. Mm. Uh, for sex, that's humiliating, but you're in on the joke, and so on. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I think it it speaks to the very fragile experience that is sex, right? There's, as yeah. you say, there's so much incongruity. There's so many variables that you're trying to account for all the time. There's so many things that can go wrong. That without a sense of humour, you're in for a pretty hard slog, I would say.
0: <laughs> exactly, because it's oh, that's it. The mood's done. The mood's killed. It's over. It. This is the yeah. worst thing that's ever happened to me, and I'm yeah. going to sook. Yeah, Well, it doesn't have to be that way. It's, mm. it's easy and it's understandable that it is that way, but it doesn't have to be that way.
1: Mm. You know? Yeah, I mean, one thing you do a lot um, in a way that I found quite impressive was the, the way you wrote a lot about your own sexual experiences and they're very sort of integrated and steeped into the whole book throughout. What was that process like? because I can imagine as a philosopher coming into your own experiences and bringing them into your work would be different confronting potentially. Why did you feel that it was important and what was the experience like?
0: Okay. So one thing I've noticed in nonfiction books or nonfiction essays is that for some writers, they start with an idea they want to tell people and they find a story to go with it. Mm. So, whether that's philosophy or science, any other discipline, they just want to kind of tell people about stuff. And so they have this educational mission and they tack on a little narrative and they tell people, the narrative is neither here nor there really. It's there to serve the purpose of instructing the masses. And I don't write books that way. I start with my experiences or the experiences of others and ask what the hell's going on here. Um, partly because I don't have all the answers. Like I'm trying to find stuff out rather than assuming that I'm just kind of bringing this whole corpus of glorious philosophy to, to <laughs> dole out to the, the hungry paws. And so, I, you know, I've, I've written about my experiences of reading. I've written about my experiences of exercise, um, uh, of distraction. I wanted to do the same thing with sex. And it mm. was, it was never... It never seemed strange to me to do it that way because that's how I've always written books. You know, mm. I to take one example, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about being asked to choke someone and I did not know what was going on in that moment and I did not know what was going on in that moment 20 years later. Yeah. It took, I had to think about it to understand what was going on and I hadn't thought about it. Which leads to your second question. It was really awkward and embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was not easy at all. It was quite painful in parts to to think about things that had happened. It, it was certainly awkward to talk to the people involved and say, "Did this right? How I, do I understand you here?" Mm. Um, and also just to just to remember all the times that I've just been a clueless twit. So, yeah, it was difficult. It was really difficult, but I I wanted to do it properly. And, you know, it was really gratifying to have some of the reviews where, you know, the, the critics essentially said, you know, we really appreciate how much the author has tried to write about sex in a way that does justice to it. You know, mm. that's, that's, that doesn't come off as the world's best, world's worst sex writing award, except in philosophy. So, yeah, I, I, it was necessary, but difficult, I guess, is the short answer.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely translates. I mean, reading it, there's a lot in there that you bring up. In particular, in the chapter around the choking, yeah, and in all parts, the sense that you know, you're really grappling with these ideas and issues, but by having the context of your experience in there, it's like, oh, I can recall all of the times that I've grappled with exactly the same things. So I can completely understand the power of it and why it felt important. I think that was one of the most interesting things for me in reading it was this sort of tension throughout about sort of how we reconcile our erotic selves with our non-erotic selves and the fact that that's a pretty messy issue of wanting things that you feel like you shouldn't want Mm -hmm. and how our desires and our morals are definitely not always in alignment for sure why is that the case (laughs) what would philosophy have to have to explain that for us I suppose
0: Look, the first step is existing that that even exists mm. because, you know, one of, one of the big social and psychological problems around sex has been the idea, especially for men, I would say, that their ideas and their morals are completely in sync. Mm. There's no, there's, there's no um, tension there at all between my sense of myself as a decent man and my sense that I can just demand sex at every opportunity because I'm married, that my wife just exists purely for my sexual pleasure and has no need for sexual pleasure of her own, let alone consent. And yet, well into the 20th century, there was no such thing as marital rape. And that comes down essentially to the basic unwillingness to accept what we were just talking about. (laughs) There's a conflict between what I desire, and my sense of morality. Mm. Like whole generations of men had to be taught that there was a conflict between themselves as decent, thoughtful, moral beings and as rapists. Yeah. And like putting it that way, it sounds absurd. (laughs) It really does. (laughs) But but the social structures, the institutions of, of family and law and politics were set up by men, partly in the service of men. And it sounds ridiculously conspiratorial, but, I mean, it was the case. Laws Mm. were enshrined to protect these kinds of practices. So the first point is just accepting that that's the case is a big step, I think. The next thing I think is this is a frustrating answer, but it's the only answer I have, and that is there's no easy way out of this. There's, mm-hmm. there's no neat rule that tells you what the right thing is to do. And you always have to be aware that there's an abyss sometimes between what you want and what's right. And that your desire for something is not a justification for its existence. You just happen mm-hmm. to desire it. Bad luck. You can't yeah. have it. Sorry. Like, we put this another way there is no divine law or natural state of being moral. Mm. There's no point at which you can say, here is the easy way to be moral. Just let it happen. It's fine. You have to work to be moral every day. And part of that is asking, is what I want bad? Mm. Is it bad for me? Is it bad for someone else? That, like the, yeah. And that happens with food. That happens with shopping. That Mm. happens with writing and it happens with sex. None of these spheres of life are outside of moral experience.
1: Mm. It's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously that makes perfect sense in the context of experiences of a lot of men, but you have this interesting sort of other component of it where for women feminist rhetoric would have us believe that there are things that we want that we shouldn't want as well they're not necessarily inherently bad to have but we've been told you're a bad feminist if you behave x way during sex if you're willing to submit and things like that yeah that's not necessarily true (laughs) it's not necessarily wrong to be submissive or to be dominant
0: nope they have no moral value yeah
1: yeah and that's what i found really compelling about the way you wrote the choke me part of the book was that that is kind of the point you come to right you make your own decision in the end where you yes. choose not to choke the person yep. but you have a you articulate a really beautiful understanding of the power dynamics that are present there and what's feeding into those two things
0: exactly so the idea there is the moral response is to have an open and trust and trusting relationship with your partner mm. where you communicate about what you desire and the consequences of that, and that's ongoing. So, you know, there's no sense in which there's a marriage vow where you're like, right, we've signed the contract, let's go. (laughs) It's going to be like this for the next 50 years. Let's go. Um, It doesn't work like that. You're constantly negotiating and renegotiating what is best for you both or for however many of you there are. I, I also think, bringing it back to what you said, that's why the focus on the act is a mistake mm. because the the act only gains its moral meaning from the context of the relationship it's in. So you know, you will see feminist writing saying that submission is bad. Well, submission to whom? For what reason? Mm. If you're freely submitting to someone who will engage with you in a game of S&M for your sexual pleasure, who will stop when you ask to stop, who will go when you wants to go, where's the harm? There's no harm. Mm. And it's a very particular kind of submission. You will also read works that say, you know, the, the terrible thing about porn is, is, is women are having anal sex. And it's like, well, if they're being coerced, that's the problem. If they are with men who are brutalizing them, that's the problem mm. that the act is neither here nor there. Mm. It depends on the context. so yes, I, I agree the, the idea that I mean there's two parts there there's the desire for something and then there's the act itself and neither of those things have any inherent moral value. They're neither sins nor anything else.
1: Yeah important to delineate
0: <laughs> yeah because i think one of one of the problems with the the theological partly philosophical backdrop is the idea that there there are just things that in, that are inherently and essentially bad yeah and just the mere fact of occur of occurring is a problem masturbation that's just wrong mm. having sex out of wedlock well that's just wrong And getting away from that nonsensical essentialism is really important, where you actually stop and pause and say, well, hang on a minute, who's doing what to whom in what context and why? Then we Mm -hmm. can decide whether there's harm or not.
1: Mm. And I think even when you take that out of sort of a a harm reduction framework, it still stacks up, right? Like that's still a useful way of thinking about any relationship, right? I think particularly when... There's an author, Catherine Angel, who wrote a book called Tomorrow the Sex Will Be Good Again, and Mm -hmm. her sort of premise in that book is that there is now a, a huge amount of pressure on women in particular to understand what they want sexually we put the onus of consent on women yep. and then relying on them knowing what they want, yep. but that doesn't allow any space for the negotiation of, of power dynamics. And what Catherine angel really ends up pointing to is very similar to what you end up pointing to, which is that there needs to be more of an embracing of, of ambiguity mm. and that obviously there needs to be baseline consent, but by looking at power dynamics more closely Either within yourself, between a couple, between however many individuals, even on a whole social societal level, that's the useful way to to frame these things. And that's, I guess, how you find your way through some of the the ambiguity around these morals and desires.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, it's it's again coming back to really what we first started with. It's partly about curiosity. You know, mm. It does not have to be a horrible kind of. <laughs> sad oppressive chore yeah like it can be fun and curious and yeah it can be bewildering and and you're allowed to not know what you want and try to work that out with other people and i completely completely agree with this idea that suddenly (laughs) women are supposed to have a kind of to-do list of (laughs) sort of sexual desires and What happens with men is they, I'm talking chiefly about men because that's the context in which these conversations happen, Uh, they come to men with their laundry list of sexual wants Mm. and then uh, they sat down together at a table and they write out a contract which says, I consent to us, to you giving me these things that I know I definitely want. I mean, you know.
1: (laughs) It's problematic for
0: all sorts of different reasons. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. First of all,
1: you're probably not going to have great sex. Secondly, it's, yeah. Not great for consent either.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I kind of getting back to, to Catherine Angel's point, it really am just starting with discovery and ambiguity and mess and saying embracing that tangle and fluidity of things is not giving up on ethics. You need mm. ethics because of that. Because yeah. the world's messy and changing, and so are our psyches. So you that's why you need enthusiastic consent or put in a way that's less bureaucratic jargon (laughs) you want to be with someone who's hot for you and do you know what I mean like
1: talk about (laughs)
0: words like enthusiastic consent I get it I completely get it yeah like
1: it's a pretty basic concept (laughs) yeah
0: it's like you're talking about someone who's horny for you and excited about it Mm. right and it's kind of And at least letting you know. Yeah. But when you talk about enthusiastic consent, it sounds like something you get before, you know, it's like part (laughs) of an ethics proposal that you need before you do the work. And I, like, and I'm I'm not in any way downplaying the need for education and to use this language to help, especially kids, understand what's necessary. Mm. But when you are familiar with sexual activity, exactly and trying to write about it in a way that's exciting and subtle and vivacious yeah yeah
1: as you say i think for kids it's a great thing but for adults you're dealing with something different unfortunately how we're educating adults is i know fairly similar to to how we educate kids yeah but i think sort of the the key idea you end the, the book with is which is very much linked to this, is talking about sort of reflection ahead of reflex. Mm-hmm. Or you say this thing of sort of um, engaging in sex enthusiastically with an attentive pause. Yeah. And presumably the attentive pause is where the ethics comes in,
0: right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, it, you know, it was as I was saying earlier, unless you're just a bundle of reflexes, in which case you can give up on much of your humanity anyway. And don't expect that humanity from others because they're just a bundle of reflexes so they can do what they want to you. Mm. Unless you really believe that, then sex too is, is uh, an aspect of your existence you need to think about. And you might find the thinking itself interesting, but it also might enrich your relationships, whether it is allowing you to laugh at your own god-awful performance or making you rethink your sense of nudity and how you relate to others' intimacy, Um, whatever it is, the idea is that you can get more out of your sexual humanity than just five minutes of clumsy rutting. (laughs) And I think
1: that's a pretty good point to end the conversation (laughs) on. (laughs) One thing I did want to ask you was... Book recommendations you have for people that want to start thinking about sex beyond, of course, your own book.
0: <laughs> sure, um, I mean Irving Singer. His works on sex are a good place to start in terms of the philosophy. He's mm. he's very clear, very straightforward, enormously informed, very erudite. So definitely, Irving Singer is a great place to start for the philosophy. Like I, I've been very influenced by poetry and novels. Mm. Not just philosophy, partly because, as I said, I'm drawn to the experiences. So Another Country by James Baldwin is a Mm -hmm. novel that deals with sex and masculinity and sexuality so beautifully and with such a grasp of nuance and complexity. He's a magnificent prose stylist, but he has also obviously thought really deeply about sex and sexuality. So, yeah, Another Country... I'm drawn to poems like uh, "The Connoisseur of Snails," Sharon olds, where she talks about the antennae of slugs going up, and how you know she's reminded of that when she first sees a penis uh, yeah. erect. And
1: I'm never uh, going to see a penis the same way again.
0: <laughs> you know, she says it's it was so tender and so trusting you could weep. <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's such a beautiful poem. That is simultaneously funny but also tender um, yeah. about sexual experience. Ocean Vung, the author, yeah. writes magnificently about sex and sexuality, a poet but also a really thoughtful writer. And I think the book is On Earth We're Briefly Beautiful.
1: On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous.
0: We're Briefly Gorgeous, thank you. Yes. Yeah. And look, this may sound like a, an odd recommendation, mm. but a philosopher who takes sex seriously who's also enormously cultured and a brilliant writer is Friedrich Nietzsche Mm. and he's one of the first kind of canonical western philosophers to not just include sex as an aspect of his work but to celebrate it so you get people like Schopenhauer who says oh like sex (laughs) is a big part of our existence but he thinks it's bad and he wants to get away from it Whereas Nietzsche's like, nope, we don't get any good things without the sexual drive. Now, I think he's wrong. I think that's reductionism and so on.
1: Mm. But
0: in terms of his capacity to take sex seriously yeah. and, and our sexual drives as creative rather than just damaging, I really appreciate that.
1: Okay. I haven't read much Nietzsche, so I'll have to get amongst it. Yeah,
0: look, <laughs> he's a horrible misogynist dick in so many ways. And look, they all were. We've yeah,
1: got to take see, with the, the, the bad in some places. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. But he's <laughs> on so many other things, look, as, what's so frustrating about Nietzsche is in many ways he was so profoundly critical of the tradition he found himself in and he was able to leap out of it and criticise mm. it just in the most brilliant ways. But then, when when he gets to women and gender, mm. once again, yeah. he sucks.
1: Yeah. yeah, I find. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Freud, Jung. It's Freud.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs>
1: it's hard to respect anyone who says that clitoral orgasms are immature.
0: Oh God! <laughs> just listen to- anyway. Um, I will add. I will add also, Martha Nussbaum is yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. There are so many people, and I just my mind just. <laughs>
1: Well, if you think of any later, you can send me an email and uh, we'll chuck them all in the show notes.
0: Yes, please do. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your um, careful reading of the book too.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And thanks to my guest, Damon Young. Head to the show notes for more book recommendations from Damon, as well as a link to his wonderful book, On Getting Off. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho, who edited this episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing or don't, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Becoming is spelt with a U. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.